This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I've been paying homage to James Baldwin over the last couple of episodes because he really inspires me. He's a person who thought about the world in a way and made people uncomfortable and change what they thought and felt just by asking questions, by throwing out uh, scenarios. Uh, The man was brilliant, James Baldwin. So brilliant that his words today are still relevant and powerful. And um, I've been inspired to, to actually, you know, teach. Of course, I teach for a living, one of the many jobs that I have, but I also am somebody that is an avid learner. I'm reading a lot, and the improvement of my ability to be able to think through problems and to be able to imagine a world that I want to live in, it really requires a constant education. So if you are home right now and you're not going out, which most of us should not, uh, go over to Ashford University and challenge yourself. If you were thinking about going back to school and unsure because education right now is very uncertain, Ashford University has been online for years. They have helped people get masters, BAs, BSs, and even PhDs. If you were thinking about going back to school, Ashford University may be for you. The classes are built for you. You can take them where you go. You don't have to show up at at a classroom. The classroom goes with you. They have expert teachers that will give you real-world experience, and you can pursue your bachelor's, your master's, in one of their 60-plus programs like business administration, healthcare administration, and psychology. And best of all, Ashford programs allow you to learn on a convenient and flexible schedule that works for you. 24-7 access to your classroom, daily support, and financial aid are available. Ashford will give you the tools you need to help achieve your goals. And a lot of us are having to rethink what it is that we want to do with our lives. So head over to Ashford University and get started. Best of all, um, they best of all, you can apply right now. There are no fees to apply and no standardized testing. So go enroll at ashford.edu slash Karen. That's ashford.edu slash K-A-R-E-N ashford.edu slash Karen. Not all programs are available in all states, so go check them out at ashford.edu slash Karen. Up next is a discussion that I had with Sandy Darity, Dr. Sandy Darity, an economist at Duke University, and his co-author, Kirsten Mullins. And we talked about From Here to Equality, but we also talked about the importance, which is their book, From Here to Equality, the importance of challenging all of the things we've been taught and also really pursuing the truth and knowledge because that really will set us free. I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullins, authors of From Here to Equality. And I'm welcoming back someone who's been on the show a couple of times and now he's come bearing gifts. His co-writer, her name is Kirsten Mullen. She's with us as well as Dr. Sandy Darity Jr. They are the authors of Here to Equality. It's even more important. Welcome back to the show. Welcome for the first time, Ms. Mullins. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show, Ms. Mullins. Glad to be here. Good to see you. All right. Y'all are practicing social distancing, so I'm hoping that y'all are good. <laughs> so yeah, we're good. They are literally sitting right next to each other. Okay. All right. Well, I'm listen. 
Um, last time you were on, and I've been, you know, talking to you guys off mic uh, about what I wanted to do with this segment. Um, I think it's important because there's so much ignorance in our country. Last time you talked about the young man who swam over the imaginary line uh, and got pelted to death, killed in, in the water in Michigan on that line. And uh, it led to, you know, a whole decimation of a town. I wanted you guys to talk about, you know, the, the land grabs and the land grants and the welfare that was set aside because there's this notion that, you know, my people mm-hmm. came here through Ellis Island with a dollar in their pocket and I didn't have anything to do with slavery. So when you talk about reparations, why am I being included in this conversation? I didn't have anything to do with Jim Crow. Why does my family have to pay for blah, blah, blah? But the, if we're being honest and you write about it from here to equality, there's been litany of set-asides for white folk that excluded black people, which is why we have this wealth gap. Let's talk about that today. I'd be happy to to start. So one of the first uh, such sort of free equity uh, programs for white Americans that we're aware of was the Homestead Act. And this was a 76-year initiative that began in 1862. And the premise was, you know, the United States was hoping to extend its reach into the Western territory. This is where Native Americans were living and thriving. Um, But if you were willing to uh, help to extend the territory and uh, subject your family to literal slings and arrows, uh, you could, for a very small amount of money, um, lay claim to 160 acres, right? So black, uh, black people were not eligible. They were still largely enslaved at this, point, at this point, right? So they were not considered citizens. They could not uh, own property, could not inherit property. And so black people were effectively um, uh, eliminated from this Homestead Act program. Um, research uh, by Trina R. Williams indicates that 287 million acres of land were given to uh, whites during this program. So to give a little perspective, 287 million acres is equivalent to the land mass of um, Washington State, Oregon, California, Nevada, and Massachusetts. Come on. Or the same same land mass of, you know, the total land mass of California and Texas combined. And... um, uh, Trina Williams' research indicates that uh, today, um, whites whose great-grandparents were part of this Homestead Act of uh, 1862 um, still own that land. So, uh, you know, the estimates run as low as 20 million whites to 90 million. So she says she settles on about 46 million people. So not only did they um, did their ancestors receive these land grants, they have been able to pass them on to the next generation. So whether one decided to continue to farm on the land or if you decided to sell off part of the acreage and farm on part, or if you um, decided to sell all of it and invest in something else, um, you still have that land as leverage. So when you went into the bank, you were known as a landowner. Uh, you were known as someone who had standing in the community. Um, so you could weather, you know, difficult times. You could weather a downturn in the economy. You could weather uh, perhaps even a poor harvest year. 
but you were able to send your children to school. You could access medical care. These are things that black people could not do because they were deprived the opportunity of participating in that program. So if you look at the end of the period of enslavement at emancipation, when black people were promised a 40-acre land grant. So all right, so already now we've got inequality baked in. You know, white people have access to 160 acres, but black people have promised 40 acres. A fourth of that. A fourth of that to start with. Um, But they didn't get the 40 acres, right? Um, You had a very small number, about 40,000 people, who were initially settled on 40-acre plants, uh, you know, plots of land. But um, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Andrew Johnson becomes president. Um, He rescinds that order. uh, And he, you know, commands the Freedom Bureau, which was um, uh, operating and monitoring those programs. He tells them that you have to um, return the land to the former Confederates, and that's exactly what happens, right? So black Americans don't have a chance to, to get that grub stake uh, in 1865. That's the first round. Two things, um, and we're, we're talking with, of course, Kirsten Mullen and Dr. <laughs> Sandy Darity. From Here to Equality is this amazing book that I am listening to on audiobook because it's 440-something pages and my eyeballs hurt. I love listening to it. It's great. Um, two things. America was founded to give rights to wealthy land, to land owners. Land ownership was foundational within our constitution. So the connection of land ownership and power, land ownership and rights and land ownership and wealth baked into the soil of this country, number one. Number two, with this uh, 40 acres that were promised, they, as you mentioned, gave it back to the people who formerly enslaved people, but also they got reparations for loss of property of those human beings. This country gave reparations to many of the, am I reading that incorrectly? Actually, no. Um, But it's only one case where you had actual compensated emancipation. Compensated emancipation happens in the District of Columbia. Uh, And this happens, you know, um, in the 1860s. And um, yeah, during the course of the during war. the course of the war. Yeah. So Lincoln met a number of times with different groups of leaders from the South and the North, trying to convince them to accept a program of compensated emancipation. Um, the figures per slave range from about three hundred dollars to as much as about five hundred. But you know, our sense is that the Southerners really did not believe they were going to lose the war, and so they took the gamble. Right. Um, but as recently, you know, uh, uh, was the um, the Hampton Roads uh, conversations that Lincoln has with Alexander Stevenson, Alexander Stevens, rather, who was the vice, who was president. The vice president of the Confederacy. Yeah. He's saying, you know, even at this late date, you know, many people have died. Um, you know, the war. I think he said, you know, we. I think we know what the end is going to be. I'm still willing at this late point to compensate the South for their human chattel, and, and they said no. Well, actually, that's, well, we don't know absolutely what Stephen said um, because there's no official record, but we do know that Lincoln... Well, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. <laughs> we do know that Lincoln introduced the question, and we also know that on at least five other occasions, he had this conversation both with his own cabinet, but also the Southerners who came to Washington to talk to him, and they just 
but no. What's really significant about that is the Civil War didn't necessarily have to take place at all. That if the uh, if the if the slaveholding South had accepted a compensated emancipation arrangement, you could have ended slavery and you could have avoided the bloodshed simultaneously. Uh, so when people talk about this notion that uh, reparations has been given because of the sacrifice of lives during the course of the Civil War, uh, apart from the fact that a, a significant portion of that loss of lives were uh, were attributable to black Union soldiers who were fighting for their own self-liberation. Uh, but when people say that, they're ignoring the fact that the war did not have to take place at all and that uh, it was a consequence of the reluctance, refusal of uh, the white South to actually say, well, we'll take payment in, uh, in return for emancipation of, 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 of the black people that we own, and, uh, and, and that will settle all accounts. But they, they would not do that. Let me you one other minute of the 1862 Homestead Act. Um, the whites who subscribed to that program supposedly uh, you know, uh, testified on oath that they had not raised arms against the Union. Uh, you know, it's not entirely clear how um, uh, how carefully prove that. Right. Right. <laughs> right. How carefully that was researched. Yeah. But that was supposedly one of the tenets, uh, you know, for them to be able to participate in what became this this enduring legacy uh, of an early asset building policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this single policy has had tremendous tremendous consequences for white Americans. I would I would what, add, what uh, monetary estimate can we put on that 160 acre 287 million acre uh give to these people t- in today's dollars what would that represent That's an excellent question. question and and we haven't done the calculation yet when when we did the estimate of the value of the 40 acres uh, that should have been allocated to the formerly enslaved, which would have amounted ultimately to at least 40 million acres. Uh, we assume that in 1865, an acre, uh, each acre of land would have cost uh, $10. Yeah. So, so we valued the 40 acre plots at $400. Uh, but the Homestead Acts were, the allocations were distributed over many years so we can't entirely anchor it on the price of an acre in a single year, but it's a calculation worth doing. Yeah, we'll work on I that. think you prompted <laughs> yeah, prompted us yeah. to think about that. That's very good. Yeah. One interesting thing, one interesting aspect too about the Homestead Act. Um, say you uh, you reached you know your oasis and you decided that the land was not uh, arable uh, or it was too far from the railroad, you could trade that 160 acres for another set of acreages that was more, um, more specific, right? <laughs> and many people did. Yeah. You know, they discovered, and some people, you know, made at least two different trades. You know, they, they kept at it until they found something that worked for them. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, that, um, you know, you had similar kinds of programs uh, in action. So um, when uh, Texas was fighting its independent uh, wars with Mexico, they frequently did not have enough money to pay soldiers, and so they paid them with land, right? Mm-hmm. And so here again, you know, free equity, and, uh, you know, those parcels varied significantly. You know, if you lost an arm, you know, you might receive X amount of acres. 
but but just for serving period, you know, you often were given land in exchange for uh, for your service. Mm-hmm. And so um, then if you move a little deeper uh, in time, you had, um, you know, veterans who would go to the federal government to seek loans. And the loans would have a clause in them such that uh, if the person who had taken out the loan died, the loan would be paid in full. So these are veterans who are probably in their 60s and 70s, maybe even their 80s. A lot of these folks died before those loans were paid, right? And so their families have, you know, free access to this asset, which they could then use, and they did. Um, I mean, I'd like to see, you know, some data, a little bit of research to find out exactly how many people fit this description, but I think it was substantial. You know, the uh, political scientist Ira Katz-Nelson has this book with this very, very pregnant title, When Affirmative Action Was White. Uh, The focus of his book is primarily on the way in which the federal government subsidized white home ownership throughout the course of the 20th century while doing quite the opposite for black homeowners. Uh, But but we can think about uh, affirmative action being white in the 19th century. First, slavery could be viewed as a form of white, uh, white affirmative action. But quite dramatically, the handouts of these 168-acre parcels of land uh, are a form of, were a form of white affirmative action. And now, now Kirsten is mentioning this loan forgiveness arrangement that was predicated on your death. Uh, that also is another form. So, so there's a sense in which the United States government has been providing substantial social welfare for white Americans long before any form of a welfare payment was ever made to any black Americans. And indeed, the initial welfare programs of the 20th century, which come into play in the 1930s with the New Deal, Black folks were excluded from those benefits for upwards of 30 to 35 years uh, because of the way in which the laws were written to placate the Southern, uh, the Southern Democratic congressmen. I wanted to Andy and uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, the, the scholar who has done all this work on this military land grant program is Jennifer Mueller. Yeah. I mention her name. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I love, hi, Sandy and Kristen and Tina. Um, I just, you know, I, this is like the next book I have to read. I read the, uh, the Color of Money just before this, and now I'm, I'm due to read this and probably listen and read at the same time. And I, I want to just bring back one of those comments you made earlier that the war could have been avoided if the South would have just accepted a negotiation. I think that really is important to remember because so many people make it this economic argument that it wasn't animus, right? It wasn't some sort of dehumanization wasn't this kind of like wanting to own prop humans as property. And, but it really was, it got to that point where if that's the deal point that you're not willing to agree on, I've never heard that before. So it's really amazing to hear that. And I think that's a, a point well worth bringing up again, but I wonder what would a homestead act today look like if for, for black Americans, right? Not for white people again, <laughs> but what would what would that look like, and could you do it? Would we have to expand into Canada or something? I, I'm sure they won't mind. 
Well, that would be the first question. What is the land available? We have to destroy the national parks, I guess. Or so. and, and in fact, that that is what that is what caused the end of the program. You know, at a certain point, um, uh, it may have been Roosevelt actually who said, you know, we need to save the rest of this land for the country as a whole. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. 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 And that is what. Yes, exactly. And that is when the national park system, you know, the national parks program became a thing. So what would that look like? Um, you know, if we're not talking about land per se, but talking about other types of illiquid assets, um, you could be talking about trust funds. You could be talking about mutual funds. I um, mean, there's a whole variety of um, financial instruments that are, um, you know, uh, terrific at providing wealth, but are not so liquid that they might be uh, expended, you know, overnight, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, one might invest in, you know, corporations, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but the key point is, if you gave people uh, financial resources, they could choose to purchase land if right. they wanted to. Uh, and and then you wouldn't have a situation where you were going to have to acquire this em- enormous landmass to distribute to Black Americans. Uh, you know, there's an interesting historical piece that I'm sure you're aware of. That that's precisely what the idea was that was held by the Republic of New Africa, which was one of the groups that was pushing for a form of reparations, where they wanted to have uh, possession of five or six of the southern states to form a separate black country. Um, and, and to some degree, if blacks had received the coastal area that was designated under Sherman's special orders, we would not have been a separate country, but we would have had a political, social, and economic belt that was largely black. Uh, and it would be a very different story that we'd be looking at in terms of how the nation's history had evolved. Let's let's talk about that very different story, because I think, you know, we have been operating under the narrative that uh, black people aren't equipped to handle land and money and responsibility, which is why it wasn't given to us. Right. We are we have been propagandized into, you know, into these spaces. How do we break through 400 years of indoctrination into this notion that somehow the reason why there's a wealth gap is that because black people are inferior, the reason why there's an education gap is because black people are inferior. How do we overcome that, you know, in, in, in 2020 to move forward into a discussion about what's old? Because people seem to have the appetite to talk about reparations as it relates to the Japanese. No one thinks that that's a problem. We, in turn, people took them out of their homes and put them in concentration camps in America during World War II. Of course, their legacy deserves to get reparations. America even pays reparations to people who suffered through the Holocaust, even though I want to say America had everything to do with the Holocaust. The Nuremberg Laws were fashioned after the Jim Crow laws here in America. They had everything to do with this notion of a master race. That whole eugenics thing started in America and Harvard, of course, with the Planned Parenthood founder as well. Everything to yeah. do with what happened there. But we, we pay every year. We pay every year. We pay reparations. The notion that America did something to Native Americans, there was just a Supreme Court ruling today that said you know, folks in Oklahoma— 
one of those areas that black people were able to go get land, even though they left us with the worst land, didn't know it had oil on it. Ha ha. Ha ha. But then they bombed it later. Uh, but yeah, even even in Oklahoma, where they're Native Americans with sovereignty, they got their own land. There's no no appetite to have this discussion. How do we how do we get people's minds to change, Kirsten? So I want to go back to the period when black people were promised the 40 acres. Um, certainly, it was clear that black people knew how to farm that land. They've been doing it for 400 years, okay? <laughs> they were the experts. Um, when the Freedmen's Bureau brought in agents, uh, many of them from New England, uh, you know, these are folks who had gone to elite schools, whose families were involved in philanthropy, um, you know, these are the good-hearted, you know, um, white liberals. They had no idea what to do with these plantations uh, all across the South. And so they connected with the black folks who had been doing that work and said to them, okay, so we have X amount of acres here. How many bales of cotton do you think we'll be able to produce? And the black folks who had been formerly enslaved could tell them. You know, they did not know what amount of seeds that they needed. They didn't know what the seasons were. Wouldn't we need to have X number of people available from sunrise to sunset to get this crop in? The black people were the experts there. The problem was not that black people didn't know what to do with the land. The problem was all of these rapacious whites who could see a good deal on the ground and wanted in on it, right? So initially, uh, Lincoln was saying, you know, we need to set this up so that, you know, you have to have residency on the land. You can't be out of stage. You can't come down for a week and, you know, buy the property. This is for people who have been on the land, working the land, developing the land, nurturing the land. That's who this program is for. But you had, um, you know, there were people within the federal government who were not on board, which is often the case. And so they were pushing to have these land auctions in the newspapers. Well, why would that need to be in newspapers in the north, right? But they were. And so you had northerners saying, oh, Here's an opportunity for us to invest, right? And so they pushed, they lobbied, and, you know, initially you could only buy parcels of a certain small amount. Well, they pushed to buy two or three plantations at a time, right? So, you know, you say, say you know, two or three black families have managed somehow to come up with $200, and it's an auction process, and the winning bid is $230. Yeah. Right. And it was those kinds of slim margins. Always moving the target. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly, constantly. I mean, you had people like um, Edward Silbrick. He had a consortium. This guy was probably his early 20s, just out of college. But he saw his opportunity to make his move. He quickly pulled together some of his friends and family members. And he's saying, my heart is good, you know, but I think these black people need leadership and I'm the one who can do that. Um, the best thing really is not to put this land in their hands legally. Uh, the best thing to do is to have them work under my direction. Okay. Now, at a certain point, I'm going to re- I'm going to sell the land to them at decent prices, but somehow that time never came, right? Yeah. And that's you know I think a pattern that we see over and over and over again. So you had a situation where whites north and south 
Democrat or Republican, were actually exploiting access to the land to the detriment of the newly emancipated people. And, you know, I don't know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know whether the federal government, you know, actively, you know, wink, wink, you know, to white, or if, you know, you know, there, were, there certainly were individuals who seemed very focused, very sincere uh, about this program of reparations for black uh, recently ensla- uh, enslaved people. But there were many more people of influence who were seeing this as a financial opportunity, and they were going to take advantage of it. Yeah, I think there was corruption in the system. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course. And there were instances with the 40 acres where black folk came up with the money because they didn't just give them 40 acres. They gave them pennies on a dollar. They had to pay for those 40 acres. Yeah. There were several That's families right. that actually bought their 40 acres, worked that land, only to have it snatched from them during a harvest, after they harvested, after they got the crop growing, and, and they came back in and gave it back to the people that held them in bondage after they paid for it. So this discussion about uh, who, you know, reparations, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, we're going to have it. 866-801-8255. Sina Gaznavi is here. We got Sandy Darity, Dr. Sandy Darity. He's an economist. And, of course, Kirsten Mullen, who are the authors of From Here to Equality. Sina, you got another question before I go to the phones? Oh, he's combing his. What are you doing? Oh, what happened? No, my my, okay, Air, my my AirPods went on the battery. No, no, oh, I have. Okay. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> okay, no problem, no problem. Like, what what are you doing? <laughs> we have a live show. <laughs> What's happening? You got a question? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go to the phones while you get it. We're gonna show. head over. We're gonna go to Tim. Tim in Michigan has a comment or a question. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you for taking my call, and I, I'm, I'm surprised you guys have put a lot of thought into this. You've come up with some ideas, but I can't believe that you're 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 missing out on one that's kind of blatantly obvious. Why don't we just give as reparations college education, HBCUs to all? I mean, that, that gives them an education. And Why? It gives, and How does that build wealth, Tim, in a, in a system that is designed for you not to build wealth? There, black people, black women in particular, have probably hold more degrees than any other group in this country per capita. And it has not closed the wealth gap. So an education in and of itself is not going to close. We're talking specifically about wealth. We're talking specifically about closing the wealth gap. How does that close the wealth gap, Tim? Exactly this way. How did giving 40 acres on a mule... To somebody that already knew how to do the land. I mean, you can't, you, you're not going to get money. No one, no one got it though. First of all, hold up, hold up. Are you black? Uh, thank Are God you black? I'm not Temp- fucking no, black. You're yeah. not. Okay. All right. So you're calling up to derail a conversation that you're uncomfortable with because you're too ignorant to actually either read this 440 page book or do any research on your own. I know for a fact you're not an economist. You probably don't have a degree in anything that is relevant to what we're talking about right now. But you are so arrogant that you think you can call up this show and insert something cogent with no background just because of your feelings, because you're in your feelings about what you're hearing that you don't like that you don't understand because you don't have the mental capacity to understand what we're talking about. And you got the nerve to call this show. Do some work. Good work day, on yourself. Sir. Work on yourself. Don't call back. Matter of fact, stop listening. Cause this obviously is not a program that you have the capacity to understand. You don't know what we're doing here. All right. And if you're that butt sore over the conversation about making things right 
and you're that morally bankrupt that you don't understand that putting people in bondage for 400 years and then stripping them of everything when they worked hard to actually do the right thing every time they set the bar, black people met it and then they changed the, the whole game on them. And if you don't have, if you are raising children or you're in this country and you don't have a problem with this country, the greatest land in the world, doing that to people under this banner of this flag, then you have more problems than I can even start with on this show. So don't call back. Don't listen, please, uh, unless you're going to do some work, which I don't think you will because you just called to derail this conversation, and I'm not here for it. Dr. Darity, this is constant, this, this, this pushback. Yeah. As yeah. if someone, I just watched the government give out trillions of dollars. They're about to do it again. Printing money right. and then giving it to people. Clearly they have it. No one's, no one's going to starve as a result of reparations that are owed to the descendants of Africans who were here on this land, who made this country, who built Washington, D.C., and every damn thing else, including the economy. What's the problem? What do you think the real pushback is? for? Call? He wants to give out an education that he doesn't even have. Please tell me what the problem is. Uh, well, in, in, in Chapter 2 of our book, we... we... <laughs> Uh, I think we're overly optimistic, but we try to sketch in the second chapter uh, a commentary on a set of beliefs that people have where they tend to blame black people for having uh, the deprived condition that we have. And, uh, and we, we try to demonstrate that the kinds of inequalities that we're talking about, especially wealth inequality, has nothing to do with dysfunctional or bad behavior on the black on the part of black folks. It has nothing to do with black folks making bad, bad economic decisions. Quite the contrary, it's a consequence of predation, the seizure of black property, the destruction of black property, and the denial of access to accumulate property in the same way that other Americans have been allowed to do it. Uh, so we were kind of hoping that if people read that chapter, it would dissuade them of some of their prior beliefs. But I think we're, we're too optimistic. Uh, I'm not sure how we change hearts and minds on this issue. You know, Tim always, Tim throws up the thing that folks always invoke, which is education as the solution. Okay, so I'm a professional educator. Uh, I believe passionately in education, but it's not going to do much about the racial wealth gap. Uh, you know, the other statistic that I'd like to add to complement the statistic that you gave is the fact that black heads of households with a college degree have two thirds of the net worth of white heads of households who never finished high school. There it is. Let me let me, let me just add to that. Um, and, and again, you are a Ph.D. in economics, Dr. Darity. You know, as I listen and, and people say, why don't you engage people in conversation? Because if you have the appetite to learn, you keep your mouth closed and you learn. You don't have the arrogance to call up and to inject your opinion into something you clearly don't understand. But there's another level of like, well, my people came here through Ellis Island. And but y'all got welfare, too. Y'all didn't just come here through Ellis Island and scrap. You know, we need to have that conversation. They didn't just come here with a dollar in their pocket and were able to just rise up with their bootstraps in hand. The, the, the path was laid for them, mostly on the backs of black people. Can is it a conversation, a though, that? or is it a, a, a redefining what, of the narrative, though, right? But I think it's also it's like a redefining of the narrative of what we've been calling welfare for generations, right? It's, it's not necessarily a conversation. It's just we've branded the welfare for white people as 
capitalism or pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And there are a lot of bootstraps, apparently, that need pulled up in America. So I'm yeah, sorry. 160 please. acre bootstraps. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is absolutely the case. Um, yeah. You know, um, we don't know our history. Uh, I mean, I, I think that saying that I knew the broad outlines, but we did not know a lot of specifics of our, of our, our history ourselves. Um, um, looking at that research of Jennifer Mueller, she, um, one of the families that she talked about is uh, an immigrant family from Germany. And uh, the father comes, uh, he has several children at this point, and he's struggling. He's really struggling with this um, you know, the property that he has been assigned, so much so that he sends the family back to Europe because he's not making enough money to, to, to make a living. And so, you know, they're very distraught, and are they ever going to see him again? And, you know, is this just the end of their family? But he is really, really determined. And so he digs in, he makes sacrifices, and he not only survives but thrives, and he's able to bring them back to the U.S., and then their new lives begin. Uh, that's the kind of opportunity, that's the kind of narrative that I think we need to talk about. Yeah. Because most people today probably don't realize that their forebears were the folks who got their start through a program like the Homestead Act. Um, because that, that's the reason he was able to thrive. Right. It's because he was a beneficiary of the 1868 Homestead Act, ultimately. I mean, we uh, tell the story uh, in From Here to Equality about um, Reba McIntyre's family. Um, this is, uh, you know, the musician, the singer, the vocalist, whose work we really like. And um, we just happened to be, you know, channel surfing one day and saw, um, let me get the story wrong, but it was one of those, you know, who do you think, think you, you are, are, you know, <laughs> programs, you know, family history. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, someone's name at UNC, you know, the Southern uh, Southern Collections. Now you're gonna, anyway, you're gonna, we may think of this story, but a UNC Yeah. Um, and he moves 
forward. Um, and he becomes, eventually becomes a, a slave owner. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, he passes this down to his family. They, they eventually have a North Carolina connection. I mean, it's quite amazing. And so on the show, they bring Reba McIntyre on, and she knew none of this. Yeah. Right? She was completely wow. unaware. She was actually she was actually Stunned. distraught. Yeah, it was like, oh, yeah. my gosh. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I got this poor boy, yeah. you know, who was sent yeah. probably to pay off a debt that his family owed, yeah. right? Yeah. right. Uh, which is why, you know, many of the indentures were, you know, taking their chance on America. But that was the difference that was possible for her family that was not possible for black people here. And frequently we hear people say, well, my family never owned slaves. Well, I think you need to explore that a bit more carefully because frequently mm. people's families did own slaves. There's this, or they were uh, overseers on plantations or they, you know. They had some yeah, connection but, to the system. Yeah, there's a lie that circulates that only 3% of white Southerners own slaves. That is a lie. Uh, in any of these, each of the states of the Confederacy, the minimum percentage of individuals who owned slaves was 20 to 25 uh, percent. And in states like South Carolina and Mississippi, it ranged oh as God. high as half of the population of the state that was white. Well, guys, we're going to keep having this conversation with, with you because you've committed to being here more frequently. And it's nice to meet you, Kirsten Mullen. And thank you again for your book, of course, From Here to Equality, Dr. Sandy Darity as well. Thank you guys for being here today. I appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you so Always great to be with you.